Welcome to Recording Drums with Blair Sinta, where I talk to drummers about recording drums. My conversations are centered around drummers who record from their home studios or their project spaces and not only play drums, but engineer also. Today, my conversation is with the legendary Kurt Biscara. If you're unaware of Kurt, you're going to learn a lot. Kurt has recorded with Seal, John Fogarty, Bonnie Raitt, Elton John, Mick Jagger, Boz Skaggs, Nelly Furtado, Ronan Keating, and the list goes on. Kurt is a legend. He has some direct lineage to Jeff Picaro. Kurt gives us a few stories and insights into that world. Kurt was recording major records back in the 90s when the recording business was still, uh, you know, what it used to be. And Kurt is very unique because he has transitioned with the times to recording at his home. He tells us about that. And then some unique ways he's figured out how to record in an even more modern setting with his drum cat. So prepare to learn a lot. I know I learned a lot. It was awesome to talk to Kurt specifically about this stuff. I've hung out with Kurt a bunch um, around town. He's, he's a really special dude. And uh, you're going to get a lot out of this. Still act like a 15-year-old. That's well, why. that too. The drumming helps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm immature for a 56-year-old. Dude, you should see me and my, my 11-year-old and my 8-year-old. <laughs> my wife just looks at us like, really? Three kids, I yeah. I can relate to them, man. <laughs> Where's my husband? Where did he go? <laughs> exactly. How you doing, dude? We dude, don't have to keep all this, just so you know. I can, I can chop. Yeah, no, whatever you want to keep. I, I like <clears throat> being candid. It's the only way. Yeah. I like I'm being fine. rehearsed and shit. Yeah. No, you know, doing good. You know, on lockdown, self quarantining, and staying out of the crowds. My wife and I just go to the markets and come back. I know. I've turned down gigs at studios. Have you been able to transition any of that stuff to your house? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for those who want, for those who want me to play in their projects, rather than you know, if they're union sessions or non, you know, uh, non-union, um, uh, what I'd like to call vanity projects, then they send me their files, and it's easy. And I and I could I could tell that more and more people are getting more comfortable with it. Yeah, because it's um, a it's safer during this time. And B, it's, uh, you know, it, it is what it is and it saves time and money and yep. that whole thing. And your shit sounds good. And yeah, and the shit sounds good. So I don't think anyone's complaining. No one's complained yet. Right. You know, and I think as drummers, man, we're all getting our shit together. We all have like great mics and pre's and kits and right. rooms. and So... So as I was saying to you, when I reached out to you about this, like you're, you to me are super unique because you actually lived in the real studio era, right? Yeah. I, I caught the little tail end of it. I got to live it for a couple of years and then gone, but you like, you were in it, man, for like, you know, a decade plus, right? Yeah. And uh, then you got into what we're doing, what we're all doing now, you know? Right. So yeah, I started in 1990. 
So I just finished the Belinda Carlisle tour and then jumped right into my first like real pro session with Don was on the uh, uh, Bonnie Raitt record. Wow. Playing on that song, something to talk about. That's you. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's so Let's give him something to talk about. Yeah, I know. I've played along to that song a <laughs> times, man. Yeah, so so that's what started my studio thing. And then shortly thereafter, Jeff McCarl started recommending me for sessions. And then from there it just took off. So between Don Was, Jeff Pocaro, and you know, just you know how it is, you become the hot kid in town and everyone starts calling you. Right. Right. And then so that was from nineteen ninety to two thousand. And like I've said before in on other interviews, at 2000, I'm at the apex of the roller coaster, looking down, yeah, going, wee, like hands up, okay, we're gonna go down. And then I'm looking down at the track and there's no track at the bottom. Ah! <laughs> 2001, 2002, studios are closing. Record labels are folding, 2004 or five, and just keeps going and going and going and going. And just, and so during that decade of 2000 to 2010, I'm thinking there's gonna be a renaissance. The studios are gonna open up, they're gonna pump in more cake into the scene, into the industry. And every day and every moment that I said that, <laughs> more and more studios were closing, more and more people were getting out of the business and just, moving away and retiring and right. you know and i'm talking about you know producers and songwriters and people that i worked with through the years and rightfully so you know they made their money they made their mark and they got out on top mm -hmm. um so and when I started it, go ahead no well i don't want to interrupt your your flow when did it dawn on you that maybe a good thing is to start recording at home or had you experimented with that already or anything like before 2000? No, because I was holding out knowing that in my mind that, oh, there's going to be a renaissance. It'll, it's all going to come back. It's all going to be rejuvenized and new blood will be pumped into the system and, and there'll be, you know, new people at the helm and they're going to support live musicians. And so while I, I was saying that, all these cool plugins were coming in, sound replacement was coming in, DAWs were getting better, cheaper, easier to access, easier to program. Uh, and, and the top thing of them all is budgets. Right. So it was like, wow, I'm not getting as many calls. Oh, why? Oh, because there's no budget to get your drums there. Hey, can we get your cartridge guy to do your drums for $50? Hell no. Cost fifty dollars just for him to go round trip to fill the tank to to bring the drums, you know what I mean? Yep. So it all started making sense. And I was like one of the last holdouts to get into home recording because I was just in such belief that it was gonna come back. You know, that all the studios that I worked at in the nineties were gonna just come back thriving and man, I was wrong. A lot of those a lot of those um, studios have closed. Yeah. Um, was engineering something that you paid attention to much before? You know, this, it was it anything that interested you or was it the thing where you looked at the engineer like, wow, that guy is like 
incredible. Like you obviously knew what you were doing on one side of the glass and you come in and it sounds great. Did you, did you talk to engineers much about like, Hey, okay, this sounds great in the room, but like I'm coming in here and there's this other thing. Did it, was it an interest to you much? Absolutely. Um, You know, way before I even got into home recording, I would show up early, obviously, because I'm the drummer and have to show up early and get sounds. Mm -hmm. So I thought, while I'm here, I could educate myself asking the world's best engineers, Al Schmidt, Joe Ciccarelli, uh, Chris Lord Algae, uh, Jack Joseph Puig. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. All the greats that I've worked with. And I would ask stupid questions. And I'd always preface it with, hey, I'm going to ask a stupid question. And all of them are so cool. They'd always say, no question is stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that D112 inside my kick drum? And where does it go to? Show me the chain. Mm-hmm. And so they'd show me the chain of command of how to mic a kick drum and what that cable connected to from the mic to the mic pre or what board or whatever, the SSL or the or the... Uh, the Neve or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no question was stupid. So I go through the kit. All right, what's the snare? What's the hat? What are the toms? What's the overheads? What's the distance? Why are the, why are you miking my kit even overhead? Mm-hmm. Or with Al Schmidt, it was, why is it opposite? Why, you know, and so I would get different answers from different guys and and I would formulate in my head, like, okay, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Why do you flip the phase on a bottom microphone on the on the snare drum versus the top? Why? What does phase mean? What does it sound like? Mm-hmm. I had no idea of any of this. Uh, I was a drummer. And I'm, you know, I was from the school of, you know, I came up recording on tape. And Pro Tools didn't come into, the, into play. Pro Tools came into play when I did... The first seal record which was 91 it was called sound tools then right and it was just stereo pro tools called sound tools so it was it was just creeping in in 91 92 so you know i i came from tape so there was a lot of time spent getting drum sounds and a lot of time with these engineers and on what what was what and so just asking these guys these questions through the years helped me with my home recording. Yeah. So you, you literally had the the days where you spent an afternoon getting a snare drum sound. Oh yeah. Like days on toms. Doom, 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 doom. Like for hours. Okay. Let's take a break. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Mexican. Okay. Let's go eat Mexican. Go eat Mexican. Tequila, right. come back. These sound better now, man. <laughs> I know, and, and it's like, um, those are great times. Those are wonderful times and learning about drums and learning about the process. And I really, really miss that yeah. um, because I'm by myself now. <laughs> as you are three times the work right yeah it's three times the work for a third of the pay yeah but we do it because a we love it b we have bills to pay yeah you know c you know what else whatever <laughs> kids <laughs> yeah mortgages whatever you know yeah. so but but number one is always the love i think 
I mean, no doubt. It's, it's, I think it's so much work now, but it does, it never feels like work, but it's a lot of labor intensive work running back and forth, getting sounds, switching out drums, switching out microphones, studying the song, charting the song. I mean, I always joke that like my, my actual playing time is about 15 minutes, you know? Oh yeah. For the song. Yeah. yeah. Total. Absolutely. And the, and the other part is an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like being on the road. It's like you travel for 22 hours a day and then you play for two. It's a kind of a exactly my, my dear friend, Mark St. Louis, who's a tour manager, production manager, who's been doing it forever. He says it's the 22, the other 22 hours of the day when you're on the road. Yeah. Checking into hotel, (laughs) being on time, lobby call, sound check, you know, that whole thing, the two hours on stage, that's a given, but it's those other 22 hours not getting oil spotted at the truck stop. <laughs> no pooping on the bus. Yeah, right. <laughs> so what was the first, so how did you dive into recording? What did you buy? How did you start? Well, I knew right away that it was all about Mike Prees and Mike. So I saved up some cake and immediately bought two channels of 1073 Neves, the Brent Averill. So I bought two channels of those. And then I started with that, with just those being my primary kick and snare. Mm-hmm. So I knew with, with the 1073 sound, my kick and snare would be off the hook right off the bat. Yeah. You know, D112 on the kick, you know, standard issue, 57 on the snare, standard issue. And then, you know, going through a, what, a, a Digio one or like, yeah, going through, yeah, Digio one and, you know, using the pre's on there. So as the money built up and so did the collection. So now I'm, I got four channels of 1073 and two channels of API, two channels of, um, quad eight. So essentially, you know, and they're all, you know, copies of the original, but it has that characteristic of those. You have, so you have racked quad eight, Mike Priest? What are those? Yeah, it's the uh, A-Design Audio Pacifica, but in the 500 series called the oh, P1. Wow. Oh, and wow. Pete Montesi, dear friend of mine who designed them and built them, he, he designed it from the quad eight point of view. Wow. And he pretty much nailed it. He, he's got that. And then for the APIs, I got the Cappies, you know, the VP25s, which is their their version of the 3112 mm-hmm. API. Yep. And then I got two channels of the Jeff Tanner 1073s, the GTQ2, mm-hmm. and then two channels of the Brent Averill 1073. Yep. So there's my, my drum kit, eight channels. That's what you do, huh, Max? That's what I do, maximum, because I... I find that any more is just redundant. So I'll do kick, snare, hat, tom one, tom two, overhead left, overhead right, and then a room mic. And then I'll send that as a, either a compressed or uncompressed sound. And it usually is just enough for the project. And it's covered every project from smooth jazz, jazz, rock, pop, you know, funk. It's, it, it covers everything. And, and all the producers that I send it to are really happy because it's like, it's just enough. And if they need more, they could just copy over a track and 
recreate it and super compress it or super reverb or whatever, but it's the essentials. And I record everything flat so they could, you know, dial it into their taste. Okay. But it's got all the characteristics of the pre's. Right. So they're getting a good signal. They're getting a good sound right out the bat. And obviously you're, you know, your sounds, your drum sounds. So yeah, that's, that's first and foremost, right? It's like, You've right. already picked the right kick and snare for the, yeah. the thing. And as you know, a four-piece kit is always the way to go unless someone says, hey, we need, you know, an octa-plus kit. Then I'm calling John Oreznik and saying, <laughs> I need your octa-plus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the channels for it, but... Then you're going to Hanson regardless or whatever. <laughs> right, right. But let me throw this in the mix. If they need octa-plus or they need an old Slingerlin Radio King, I switch over to the Drum Cat and use Superior Drummer 3. Okay, let's wait on that. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the whole thing, and that's, that's awesome. That's the whole other thing. We could do a whole other show on that. Yeah, we, we, gotta, yeah exactly. we got hours to go before we get there. <laughs> um, okay, so you pretty much go dry. You you don't you EQ a little obviously with your 1073s and yeah a little bit a little bit just to give flavor and taste just so it sounds good as soon as they put it the faders they're like oh okay there's my kick yeah and and again they'll tailor it and EQ it or compress it or whatever to their taste you know as you know by the time all said and done I sound like you or Matt Chamberlain or Harvey Mason because every every mix engineer has their template and it all sounds like right you know going oh you're through, saying we're all sounding right going like, through the speaker of this right right, <laughs> right right exactly yeah yeah um so i guess eqing is not something you worry about too much like you know what i mean like some like uh, my evolution was i was really afraid to eq things for a long time and send them and then the more comfortable I got, I felt like, okay, now I can, I can send these onto a real, you know, engineer yeah. with what I think is pretty correct. Like I, I have knowledge that it's correct. And then the same with compression, like, okay, I'm not afraid of compression anymore. I, I have a pretty good understanding of how it works. So I'm not afraid to send something that's affected, but for a long time, it freaked me out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but it sounds like you're, you're, you're just like, Hey man, the drums sound good. I know that they sound good. Right. I'm not going to worry too much because they're going to do their thing. Yeah, I'm finding the more transparent I could be with as little or no EQ as possible. Like really the only things that are EQ'd are the kick and snare. Everything else is flat. Okay. Because through the years of recording at home, I was realizing that, oh man, um, they mix the drums differently than I recorded them. So differently that uh, if I EQ'd them, it would have ruined it for them. Mm. They would have to deconstruct what I already did <laughs> or what I already ruined for them mm -hmm. to make it right for their project. So I realized if they get the raw data sound of my drums with, of course, the kick and snare sounding proper, yeah. then they could go anywhere they want. They could put in any slate plug-in, any, any, you know, whatever, mix of the masters, masters of the mix or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mixed with the masters, yeah. Yeah, they could put in any template they want. Masters of the universe. Masters of the universe and uh -huh. do whatever they want and it's going to sound right. Um, 
do you think that has anything to do with the people that you work for a lot? Because I was literally just listening to a Don Was interview and he was talking about Al Schmidt and how Al Schmidt obviously comes from super old school mixes with the mics, like like mic placement. That's a lot of his EQ. And that's that's a different art form than a lot of us use now. Yeah, because we're so... You're working a lot for cats like that? I, I work for both both the old school dudes and the new school dudes. And I, and again, that reverts back to just sending them a good drum sound so they can, they could tweak it accordingly. Yeah. The old school guys will EQ um, and do levels. The new school guys will put, put on their gang of plugins on it. Right. So, uh, you know, getting back to the miking thing with Al, you know, he showed me, it was Al, it was Al Schmidt, um, Chuba and a dear friend of mine, David Hall, who lives in Nashville, great engineer, who taught me the the overhead concept of measuring the distance evenly from the the center of the snare drum head to the overhead left and overhead right, right, uh, because it's the quickest transient. And I used to mic my drums even, like, okay, if it's not even, it's going to not sound even. Well, I was wrong. You know, I would find out that I was having phasing issues, and that was because of the distance measured from the snare drum. So the rule of thumb is three drumsticks. The average drumstick is 16 inches. And so I use three drumsticks, which is 48 inches from the snare drum. Right. So you'll find that the right overhead right will be lower than overhead left yeah 48 inches but then you'll find that when you put up the overheads it's in balance and you always do space pair yes okay only because it gets a good overall like if you just put up the kick drum mic and your overhead that should be your drum sound and it's true and like that's what the old school dudes always say like oh man if you put up the overheads and slide in the kick drum there's your drums and it's true. It's like, oh, you could hear the fundamental of that kit through just the kick drum mic and overheads and, and everything else is to taste. And obviously that's super balanced playing. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah, and I came up with those guys that would do the, the three, what's that, what's that technique called with the John, The Glenn John's technique? Yeah. John's technique. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I had to learn through that technique. Oh, you're playing the hi hat too loud. Back, or back off on the snare and pour, put more on the hi hat. So, yeah. learning with those old school cats that taught me balance of kit playing for recording. Did you did you work with Glenn Johns ever? I think he mixed something that I played on early on in my recording career, but I never worked with him directly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've only heard stories, I think mainly from Jeremy Stacy, where, you know, like, hey, you know, like, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say it was Jeremy because it may have been someone else, but like, hey, this, you know, drummer says, hey, this snare sounds a little funny. And he goes, so change it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's, it's his miking technique and it's, it's about you. It's not about what he's doing. Yeah. I like, have like, this is ready to go. 
you make it sound like how it's supposed to sound. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, there's a lot to be said to that because I remember, you know, all the times I work with Al Schmidt, I'm like, man, I'm not really digging the sound of the snare. And he goes, all right, hold on. And he'd come out and adjust the snare, move it away a couple of inches. All right, check that out. And I'd hit it. It sounds more like ass. It sounds awful. He goes, come in, play it back. And it sounds like God. Right. So it's not necessarily, it's like a give and take of like where you're sitting behind the kit versus what they're hearing in the control yeah. room. Where it sits in the mix. Yeah, where it sits in the mix. And again, it goes back to the kind of music that you're recording for, mm -hmm. what they're hearing on, on the other side of the glass and what we're hearing as drummers, what we're used to hearing. Like we're always used to hearing the immediate drum sound sitting behind it, which always sounds awesome because mm -hmm. we're drummers. Yep. Like, oh, this sounds awesome. But in there, it could sound like complete ass. Right. You know, and I learned through our dear friend, Chris Hewer, one tweak of a lug could mean the world. Yeah. It's like, we need a more, sound more like a Tama Brawl brass, but all I have is a six and a half Craviato. Okay, hold on. <clears throat> Done. <laughs> awesome. I think one of the biggest learning curves for me was not playing rim shots or, or having the technique to not play rim shots because how different that sounds on the other side of the glass. Yeah. And when you're sitting above it, you're like, what do you mean? This sounds awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like ass in the glass on the yeah. other side of the glass. Yeah. And that's, you know, just, you know, for me, you know, cause I, I've been doing this since 90 is, is learning that technique through the older cats. Don't play rim shot, play in the middle of the drum, use the butt end stick. No, 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 too thick. Go back to the tip. Play two inches back from the center of the head. You know, so it was all like technique coming from me being able to execute it mm -hmm. and the, their technique of hearing it. So it was, it, was, it was like a marriage, if you will, like the, the engineer and the drummer really hearing ultimately what, it, what needed to be recorded and can the drummer consistently deliver that performance hitting in that same spot. Yep. Okay, I have two, two follow-up questions based on that. Go. The first thing I'll go to is, well, maybe it's not even a question. It's unfortunate that we don't have that camaraderie now. That's what I'm missing here. Like, you know, I mean, I feel pretty competent. I mean, I feel very competent in what I do, but I also wish I had, like, whenever I have a real engineer come over here, which is, I don't know, once or twice a year, it's just awesome. Like, uh, my friend Greg Collins was over here um, just pre-pandemic, just before, and we went through inside kick mics, like three of them, and then we went back to the original one. And for me, that was awesome because he was coming out here. He's listening on Manus Tens. He doesn't know my room. Right. And... And I was like, dude, what are you listening for? Because I hear the difference, but I, I want to know why. Like, what is the thing that's the difference between the M88 and the ATM-125? Because they both sound good, but what's the thing that you're looking for? And that's the, the thing that the question you don't get to ask from the more knowledgeable, knowledgeable person with what right. we do, you know? Right. Yeah. So – Anyway, it's not really a follow-up question unless you have something to add on to that. 
But again, you know, what he's what he's digging on the sound could be amazing for whatever project that you're doing with that engineer. Mm-hmm. But nine times out of ten, you're by yourself, right? And someone sends you files. Yeah. You need to send them something that's going to work in the end. Right. Like if it were up to me, I would constantly send John Bonham sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we dig that, right? We're drummers like, oh my God, it's massive. But <laughs> massive isn't always, as a matter, matter of fact, massive is never good. Right. It seems like, unless. Not these days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and not these days. So it's like, we want the towels. We want the, you know, I call it the shit kit. We want the shit kit sound. All right. So let me get all the paper towels. Let me get the blankets. Let me get all the shitty, crappy put newspaper inside the drums, you know, the, that whole rigmarole, yeah. which is the style now. Right. You know, I'm starting to see more and more dudes doing the one single-headed Tom thing that's yeah. coming back. Yeah. So it all, it's all, you know, recyclical. It, it all will come back. You know, the 80s, you know, that gated thing, that's going to come back. Yeah. It's all going to come back. So as of now, my, my whole concept is just send it, send the kit that you have sounding as good as possible. And then they could deal with it from there. Unless they specifically say, you know what, I need a deader sound. Then you go for a deader sound, but just give them the sound that they could work with later as they mix. So I have this kind of opinion and you're, you're like one of the perfect guys to, to tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like guys from the eighties, Picaro, Vinny, Gad, you know, the, any number of classic dudes, you know, a million that I'm leaving out. I felt like in the eighties, they would show up with their drum kit, maybe a few snares, but their drum kit. And that would then be, that was either they, they were called because the, engineer musician wanted that sound obviously the style but i'm talking for sound specifically correct and like you do your thing instead of like a lot of what i do which is like set up six different drum kits to fit the music right is is that accurate that is accurate back then you were hired for your sound but as you know now because of plugins and because of templates and because of uh, I'll just be general right now because of pop music and where it's at, it's a very specific sound and the techniques of recording are different now. It's like, okay, Blair, give me a verse. Thank you. All right. Chorus feel on, on the hump. Okay. So you're doing that. Okay. Thank you. And then they chop you up and dissect you, beat detect you, sound replace you and then you sound like me i sound like you right. we sound like each other now we're just now we're just machines now we're, I, I like to say we provide information right we're just information providers now you know back when the 80s was happening you know you could oh go oh my god that's gad that's steve jordan that's Vinny, that's picaro that's carlos vega you could go and hear their sound and go fuck that's russ Kunkel. That is a full-on West Coast sound. That's Kunkel, mm-hmm. where you put the snare, 
where it was just super fat and lazy fills. It's like, okay, that's Kunkel. That's his sound. You know, then you go to Jeff or then you go to, go to the East coast. It's like, oh man, that there's, oh, there's the Murata brothers. There's Rick. There's Jerry. You could hear the difference mm-hmm. because the way they tune their drums, the way they play. And it's like, now it's all generic. Right. Again, because of plugins, because of templates, because of budgets. Boils down to the budget. First and foremost, yeah. We need it now. Blair, I got five songs, $50, and a burrito certificate to, you know. And it's like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm hungry. I need $50. And it's like, that's where it's at. It's like, that was unheard of in the 80s and the 90s. Like, F you, man. If I don't get double scale, call somebody else. But now the game has changed. It's, uh, it's, it's sadly, you know, who's the cheapest, who's the fastest. It's not, I want Blair because of his feel and the sound. Right. And I want to pay him triple scale because he's worth it. Cause he's, I value his input. I value his drumming. He's one of my favorite drummers. You right. know, that doesn't exist anymore. It's like, who's available? Get him. How much? No, nope, too expensive. It's a drag it's yeah a, it's a drag but i hope that changes i hope people realize how great we all are and i'm not saying that from ego i'm saying that from we all have something different to offer you know i mean i think there's a i think it's, I think it's very small percentage but i think there is a percentage where that is valued um and hopefully we're going to come out of you know this time period where maybe there's another, there's a shift and it won't be, it'll never be the same, but there'll be a shift where the musicianship and the style is, is appreciated again. Yeah. Because it is still there. You know, I was asked recently by like an engineer I respect and he was like, man, just do, this was like in April. So we were on full lockdown. He was just do what you do in your room. And the, that's very rare. And, you know, this was like, I recorded two drum kits, you know, different chorus and verse. And then I put my Nord pad in there and like, I went bananas, man. Cause I was like, this is a great opportunity. You know what I mean? So it is there, but we, we really need the artists to want that. Not just yeah. engineers. And, and again, you know, we're the way, Records used to be tracked is so different from now. Like now it's either like we're the afterthought or or the opposite. All right, play play me a groove and we're gonna write a song to it. Yeah. Now you have to know what I'm thinking about, what I'm thinking about, what I'm gonna write about. So you have to make that happen. So we spend all day, all right, here's the verse, here's the chorus, here's the bridge, here's the outro. And it's like, so we're fishing constantly. Yeah. And more than ever I noticed People don't know what they want, so we're we're giving them the the freaking yeah. The, we're giving them the cornucopia of drums. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the one thing I find very interesting. I'm like, often I'm like, well, I should be named as a producer on here because I'm setting up the sonic basis of your song. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And back in the day, they would think nothing of it. Oh man, Blair, you uh, that's a signature beat sound you get co-write on this 
and a half a point. Mm -hmm. Done. Mm -hmm. Because there were budgets to do that. And there, the mindset was, we're here collectively making this project happen. So right. Right. Um, you're in. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like, you know, this is all mine. <laughs> this is all mine. This is my baby. You're just playing drums on it. All right. Done. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So when, so you, you started to, you saw the, you saw the, the, the hill of the roller coaster in 2000, you resisted and then you went in. And then at one point, what at one point at what point do you feel like you're like, wow, okay, now this is this is pretty serious. This is kind of my livelihood, like doing this, like surviving on my own. At what point do you really see that? You know, what year like, or? Yeah, I mean, approximately. You know what I mean? Do you really feel like you became like okay, the home recording thing is really like definitive it's, it's more than 50 percent of what i'm doing in studios 2013 is when it started really coming into play because by then the, a lot of labels have folded and there were the big three you know vivendi sony and whoever else i think now it's just two right vivendi and i don't even know and the universal like, oh. and sony i think that's the only two that are left and i don't even think they're labels per se they're just I don't know what they are, yeah. but yeah, it was around like 2013 where I started noticing like, oh man, this is where it's at right. and um, it's not going to go back. So I had to really um, take that into heavy consideration and um, divorce myself from the fact that studios are not going to come back. They'll be there. I'll get the occasional session there, but but for the for the jobbing drummer like myself, where I do sessions mm -hmm. and touring, this is where it's at. And you've you've obviously mainly done records, but you do commercials, you do film stuff, at yeah, home, whatever. Yeah, um, I'm finding though that films still are done in a proper um, studio, mm -hmm. you know, because well. <laughs> Budget, budget. Pre-pandemic. Pre I don't know about now. Yeah, so, yeah, 2013, I started noticing the change. I do commercials, movies, yeah. Um, more, most of my work here at the house, those vanity projects. People that love the Mick Jagger record or love what I did uh, with Elton John or whatever. They're like, man, I got these songs that I wrote on piano that remind me so much of Elton John. Can you play on these five tracks for me? I'm right. writing a record for my wife who loves me and loves the way I sing. And, and that's where it's at now. You know, it's not, you know, and because of the lack of labels and because of the lack of like everyone, it's like the wild west. It's like, everyone's an artist now. Right. If you could sing and tap everyone's an artist. Yeah. Yeah. If you could sing and tap dance and play a banjo, there's a record there. Right. I mean, in a good way, in a certain, in a certain good way. Right. The gatekeeper part is the tough part, I think. Yeah, the gatekeeper part. Sure. And what do you mean by the gatekeeper part? Well, labels. Like you had to, you know, you had to, 
have a certain amount of stage experience or a handful of great songs for someone to throw money behind it. Right. And now, right. you know, if you have 200 bucks, you can buy Logic or whatever and you, and you go. Right. In a certain way is really great. Well, I've been finding out the new gatekeepers are the rich aunts and uncles of these young artists. Right. That we all record drums for. That's it. I mean, yes, that's the like the monetary gatekeeper in that sense. Right. That's what I meant. Right. They're yeah. The ones funding those types of. Right. But this, I guess, this was, hey, are we going to throw money to support these guys touring or this artist touring for two years on a first record and make a, you know, throw five hundred thousand dollars into a video and really build them over time. Right. You know, that, that's what I mean by that. Like, do we believe in this person to develop as opposed to like, hey, we have money. Uh, let's go make a record and let's get Kurt because we can. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that whole thing is gone, I think. Because, you know, as you know, now social media is the new marketing place. Right. So if you have really good music and you're savvy on the internet, you could do a lot of damage. In a great way. Yeah, I will find that in interesting enough, though, that the times that I actually get in a room, like leave here and get in a room with my favorite people and musicians are on those projects. Yeah. Which is like, so you're like, okay, awesome. Like, yeah. I get to track with my friends for two or three days and and do that. So you're, you set up, we're still going to get to your awesome drum cat thing. <laughs> you set up in your you set up in your like like main room right, which is pretty big. The foray of my house, yeah. yeah. So when you walk into the front doors, that's where I set up the drums. Only because well, I should give some backstory. Okay. The house was owned before me by Jeff Picaro's sister Jolene. Her son Chase used to play drums in our upstairs, which is our now our office. That was his bedroom. He played drums there. The late, great Joe P used to come and have dinners here. Wow. God bless him. Mm -hmm. And they sold the house to the one and only Greg Bissonette. No way. Greg Bissonette lived in this. Lineage, man. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so you're buying my house next, bro. Right. I I'm only know. selling to drummers, by the way. I'm, I'm telling the realtor, I'm only selling to drummers. Right. So, so Greg lived in the house for three years. I found out through Peter Michael, Sheila E's brother, um, he's like, I saw him at a market out here in where I live and he's like, man, uh, what are you doing out here at Kirky B? I'm like, oh man, I'm looking for a house. He's like, oh, Greg Bissonnette's selling his house. So I, I called Bissonnette, I was like, dude, I heard you're selling your house. He's like, yeah, you gotta check it out. It's got a drum room. My eyes got that big. Right. My wife and I drove out the next morning, drove out here, looked at it and said, we'll take it. Wow. And we were moving out from North Hollywood from a small condo to this house. And so I bought Greg Bissonnette's house. And what did and, he uh, track? He obviously tracked in there. Yeah, he did it in the garage. He built a drum room in the garage. Oh, okay. But I, you know, I had to put my cars in the garage. <laughs> that was more important to me. Your roles in your Lamborghini, right? Right, yeah. yeah. The model ones. <laughs> the ones I have built in a bottle. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
so we tore the drum room down. It was actually just a drum room. It was like a practice room. It, it wasn't a proper room. Right, okay. So as we moved in and as we got moved in, all my engineer friends that would come over, the first thing they do, they walk in the house, oh man, could you be a nice house or whatever? And they do this. They walk in and go. <laughs> Drums right here. Right. And every person that can, every great engineer that came over the house, you know, for a espresso or whatever, would always point in the same place, which is the foray of the house. Where the doors open and it's right at that entryway where there's, you know, Spanish tile. And then in the rest of the living room is rugs into the rest of the living room. They're like, man, this is where you're going to get the best reflection. <coughs> Excuse me. There's no standing waves. It's groovy. Drums go here. So wow. drums go there. <laughs> wow. And your wife just splits for the afternoon, a couple hours? No, she'll go upstairs. You know, my wife's a musician too. So she'll be upstairs working on her stuff on the laptop. Okay. And that's where she sets up for, she'll set up in the same place where my drums are for vocals. Okay. The sound is just beautiful. You record her vocals? No, she does. Never? She does by herself. She does everything by herself. Okay. She per prefers it that way. It's like, you know, get out of here. Yeah. Go to the beach for the day while I cut vocals. Yeah. Yep. Let me get in my zone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we got it set up to where we run everything remotely and, just you could stand out there from the studio and right. put yourself in. And, and I think know, I do it off of my iPhone now. <laughs> yeah, I think you told me one time that you you set up and you set up and take down, like, right? Yeah, I got it down to 15 minutes to set up, 15 minutes to tear down. Everything goes behind this curtain. Right. Well, here I'll show you. So there's all magic to back there. Oh wow! Jump everything. Yeah. Oh wow! So everything fits within the bread rack. You just roll it out and you set yeah, it up and you go. Yeah, it's an SKB cases and then, wow. uh, so yeah, that's my scene. And then my wife- You don't do that anymore. So now we can go. You don't do that anymore. You're like, fuck that, man. I'm making it easier on myself. Exactly. <laughs> so enlighten us with, you've told me before and when you sent me that thing, I remember you texting me one day, you're like, check it out, man, after you had told me about it. And I was like, wow, man, because it, it's your feel. That, I think that's the thing that blew me away. So go ahead and tell us what you do now. Are we going into drum cat mode? Going into drum cat mode, man. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the drum cat, God, that thing is over 30 years old. It's a MIDI controller. Wait, hold on. I got it right here. All right. Hold on. For those... Young kids that don't know. Ta-da! Ta-da! So this is a MIDI controller. Looks like Mickey Mouse, called the Drum Cat. And um, it's got 10 playing surfaces on it. Mm -hmm. And so this thing's over 30 years old. I think it came out in 80, God. 85, 86, something like that, 87. Okay. Anyway, long story short, I was one of the first, you know, dozen guys to, to get one and start using it. Just 
because at the time I lived in a small condo and I needed to play drums and I thought, oh man, drum cat would be the perfect thing. The neighbors will, won't get mad. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I kept it and, um, because the software has gotten like amazing, especially drum sample software and plugins, uh, virtual instruments, it was a no brainer to go, wait a second. If I set up the drum cat, I have access to all of these amazing drum sounds. And here's a plug to tune track, Superior Drummer 3 tune track, insane drum sounds. And they have everything from the kit that they use on the black record Metallica. They got old 50 Slingerland, 50 Radio Kings. They, they got it all. They got every sample there is. They got a wonderful, insane orchestral pack that has every orchestral instrument you could ever want. Mm -hmm. Like they got everything. So I was like, wait a second. If I, <laughs> if I get a client and they're like, hey, do you have a 70s Ludwig? I do. <laughs> I could just go and scroll through and find the 70s Ludwig and record it using the drum cat. And like you said, it captures your feel. And what's really cool is because there's so many, um, you know, the projects nowadays and the producers nowadays, they want full control of everything. Right. They want full control. They want control of the sound. They want control of adjusting and putting you on the grid. They want it all. So I was like, man, what a wonderful marriage of the drum cat MIDI and these sounds. And I can provide any kind of style kit or sound with MIDI, send it all to the producer and they could futz with it all they want. And if they even have superior drummer, which most do, if they have it installed on their computer, they could decide, nah, I don't want the Slingerland kit. I want Tama or I want the Rogers kick drum, the Thomas snare, the Slingerland tom, uh, toms, the Sabian crashes. So it's all like mix and match now and it's easy. Mm -hmm. And I could give them a couple of passes, send off the MIDI, send off the sounds and away we go and I'm done. And um, so do you, it, you send out everything to a separate track, kick drum to one track, snare to one track. Yeah. That way they could, they could drag in the, the kick and the snare MIDI and audio and sound replace to their, to their liking. Right. Or adjust the MIDI to their liking. Right. Or strike the audio altogether and replace my MIDI performance of the kick drum with a small, you know, I don't know, small Pearl bebop kick or something. Right. Right. Anything they want, obviously. Yeah. And so, you know, I've had hours and hours of conversation with our dear friend, Chris Hewer about it. Mm -hmm. Cause he's a drum maker. He's pain of his existence right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he's like, all right, send me some examples. I want to know. I want to know what I'm up against. I felt the same way. I was, when you explained this, I was like, oh, yeah, cool, man. And then you sent it to me and I was like, oh my God, man. Like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I sent it to him. He's, I sent him a couple examples, some, just some straight up pop stuff. Um, you know, a verse, a chorus, a B section, and an outro kind of thing. So, like, maybe a minute and a half long. And I'd switch it out with different kits. 
he calls me back after listening to those mp3s and he goes i'm selling everything <laughs> i'm done yeah. drums that's what he said drums i'm like dude that's where it's at and he goes i know he goes i know he goes and i said chris i, I didn't send this to bum you out but it's just where it's at it's just what people want right we're always going to need you we're always going to need you to repair our drums tune them restore them we're always going to need a guy like you we're always going to need that because for those who love drums like we all do and collect them we're going to need a guy to to make them right right but for the jobbing engineer producer artists where things are done on a budget they can't wait for you to do the edge on the 13 inch tom so they could get that tom sound on their record it's like they need it now they only have a gift certificate for twenty dollars for <laughs> freaking in and out and i gotta provide it so right here's the 13 inch tom that they need right. Doom. okay done right and, and for uh, anyone who doesn't know chris hewer is the drum guru in la that makes everything makes every restores anybody's drum kit repairs all our stuff you know he's he's the guy and i will t testify to how badass he is i had a tom that was sounding like ass and i brought it to him i was like dude what's wrong with this he goes give me that thing i swear to god he put it on his bench and he pressed on it kind of shook it and he goes try that <laughs> i was like oh my god what did you do and it was like at that point, I was like, I'm not even going to ask anymore. I just right. know that when you touch it or look at it, it's going to be right. Right. And there are those people, like doctors, you know, it's just like they touch you and it's like, fuck, I'm healed. <laughs> I don't have a headache anymore. Yeah. That pain in my back went away. It's like there are those people. And Chris Hewer is that dude, man. Yeah. Chris is that guy. As you know, we all go to him. We, like, I don't even let anyone else touch my drums. As much as I love John Arezhnik. He's my dear friend too. He stores my stuff. It's like, you know what, dude, let Chris touch it. Cause, and he goes, all right, he knows. Yeah. Cause Chris is the man. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So getting back to the drum cat and samples and stuff, there's just a need for that now because, you know, productions are being done in such a way where time, money, and, um, the, and the, the need for it is immediate. Right. They need it now. So you send the MIDI file, but you also send the audio. You make a wave of like, these are the, this is the kit I chose. And this is, this is my performance. Here's my performance. Here's the kit I chose. Now I'm going to send it to you and you could pull it into your session. And if you dig it, use it. If not, you have the MIDI to not only replace me, but you also have the MIDI to adjust me any way you want. If you want, if you're like, man, you know what, this song, this song needs not a human feel. It needs to be to the grid. Quantize, and there you go. Right. And this goes back to 40 minutes ago, me saying that we provide information now. Right. So We're you, not just drummers. Yeah, I mean, this opens up, it, it could open up a, a whole can of worms for a lot of people. I know, it has for me. Yeah. You, I had to really get with it. Right, but you... I mean, you obviously have incredible time and I mean, I, I've never seen your, tr your tracks, like, you know what I mean? Like zoned in on them, but I do know from friends um, that have done 
a gig that you do have done and other people have done and they say when Kurt does the gig it's like it's like this like here's the grid and here's Kurt you know and do you ever feel the need to correct your midi or do you just I mean I I'm not saying that you need to but I'm saying is there a temptation sometimes to go like eh, like like that's not quite sure. what I mean because that could open like a whole you know, we can, we do that with audio sometimes like, you know, I'm like, oh, that's Phil sucked. I'm just going to move this. But I feel like with MIDI, it's even crazier, right? It is crazier. And that's where listening with your eyes, that's, that could be a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I remember when I started, when the switch from two inch tape to Pro Tools came into play and everyone, you know, the engineer, the producer say, all right, come in, let's, let's hear the playback. No one was listening. They're all staring at the computer. Oh, that kick drum's off. Oh, the guitar part is rushing. And it's awesome. like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're all listening with our eyes. What happened to the music? So I had to pull myself back from that dark space and go, okay, wait a minute. Let me listen to it. And if it's that effed up, I'll go back and look at where that MIDI note is bad and adjust it. Or I'll just adjust it just enough to still keep it feeling like me, mm -hmm. but it feels good. Yeah. Again, it's all about feel. They call Blair Sinta because of his feel. They want that feel because they know what it feels like. Okay, if I call Blair and Adam Zimmon and and Dave Levita, and I know, here's here's what it's gonna feel like. Here's 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 what it sounds like in my mind. I know when I call these three guys. This is the feel. Here's what it's gonna sound like. Done, right? You know. Yeah. Um, so, so you you may move something a hair, but you're really not. You're not. How do I phrase it? It's got to be egregious for you to go in and move something. It has to be so effed up that it's like, okay, right. <laughs> let's let's keep it real. Right, and I'm sure that. I mean, I'm just guessing that rarely happens with you regardless because of your playing is at a certain point where, you know. It, rare, it rarely happens. And when it, when it does happen, it's because um, playing on a pad, you know, it's not like a drum kit. And sometimes you get lost in the yeah. love of it and you'll right. accidentally click a stick and then it bounces and it hits the other pad <laughs> or, you know, something weird like that. Or, you know, the mouse will fall on it. Right. Do you actually practice the drum cat sometimes? No, because I've been using it for what, 30 plus years. So I've gotten so used to it and I set it up like a drum kit. So yeah, I kind of know where everything is. Right. And people are like, man, how do you play that freaking thing? It's like, well, you know, like anything is, you know, I always think about piano players like Dr. John, like it must've been weird for him to play a synthesizer, right? Right. So yeah. maybe he made that tr transition, maybe not. Maybe Elton played synthesizers or not. I don't know. But yeah. as a drummer, I was like, okay, if I want to stay relevant, I got to learn how to program and play a freaking electric drum kit, a drum cat. Yep. You know, we have Nord pads now. We have the SPD-12. We got all that stuff rolling. We got, we got all that stuff. So as drummers, it's kind of prerequisite. We know that. Yeah. And luckily, you know, because I know computers and I know, recording and I know how to run DAWs, it's just that much easier. So 
you know, for example, whenever I do master classes, my first question is like, who owns a computer? Second question is, you know, who know what, what DAW do you use? And do you know how to mic your drums? You know, cause that's where it's at now as a drummer. It's not like, Oh, can you read? It's more like, <laughs> do you use Pro Tools or Logic? Mm -hmm. Do you know how to quantize? Yeah. Which is why I find this, this, this thing, this, where we're at so fascinating. The amount of calls I got in April from a lot of friends, drummer friends who spend a lot of time on the road and all of a sudden they were home, you know, Hey man, can I ask you like a couple miking questions? Yeah, sure. Cool. And, uh, you know, I, I became a little bit of a source for a handful of people of like, Hey man, I need to get some shit going fast. Give me some pointers, you know? Yeah. I started to think like, okay, it's already been like this for a while, like recording at home, but now it's like either you're doing it or you're not. Like, right. That's it. Yeah, you're either doing it or you're not. And if you're not doing it, then you're going to somewhere that there's somebody that has a facility to do so. Yeah. And, um, and that's you make it happen that way. Yeah. But again, um, you know, going back 50 minutes ago when we first started talking, like just talking about, uh, I was one of the last holdouts of recording at home. So I was finding I was missing a lot of work because I didn't have a home session. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so at that point I knew I had to get into it, you know? Right. So for those drummers who don't have a recording rig, there's no time like the present to start. Yeah. Your hand was forced. My hand was forced because, because again, it was all about, there's a renaissance. It's going to happen. You know, right. I was wrong. I admit it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, what do you say, right? It <laughs> exactly, what do you say? <laughs> yeah. It's a bummer. It's a bummer. I mean, I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad that I got like you know, I got my I got 5 minutes in there. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, it's so funny. I you you uh younger set dudes who just came in right and slipped through the door mm. or um or you know, there's a drummer uh, Sean Horton, who I talk to a lot, mm -hmm. he like never got to experience it. So he's constantly calling me, Hey man, what was it like when you did this record or whatever? Like who was there and how did it all go down? And it's just funny, man. It's like, I guess it would be like me asking, you know, Benny Goodman or something. Hey, what was it like at the cotton club? Or I don't know, just some crazy question like that. I mean, but, it it's, you know, I was listening, you know, I, I texted you the other night because I was listening to She's the One, the Tom Petty record, yeah. which is, I mean, it's hard for me to remember, but th that's, I, I was probably aware of, I was definitely aware of you already, but that record for me was super influential um, when, at that time in my playing, right? I was, a, you know, rock drummer kid in high school. And then I went to University of North Texas and I yeah. jazzed out big time. But I knew that's not, that was not my path. And I moved to LA and that record was fairly new when I moved to LA. I think it came out in 95, 96. 96 is okay. when it came out. Okay. And that's when I moved to LA. And uh -huh. I was like, that was one of those records I was shedding to. I was like, whoa, man, this is, this is the feel that I want to, have like i want to be able to like have that sound and make that pocket but as i was listening to that record i was was it at sound city sound city i lived there man wow that was the spot 
Yeah. Oh, I love that studio. But those, that, the sounds of those records, those wildflowers and that, and that record for me, those Tom Petty were like, he shifted into the 90s, right? Like a current 90s sound. Man, those, the drum tones, the guitar tones, those are incredible sounding records besides the songs, right? The songs don't even like need to be mentioned. It's Tom Petty. It's yeah, the, the, the songs played themselves, which yeah. goes without saying, Tom Petty defined that sound and feel to me. There's no other. Um, uh, but Sound City with that Neve desk, who I believe Dave Grohl owns now, he owns that desk. So that's Wasn't there a bidding war between him and Rick Rubin and oh. Rick Rubin? I heard the story that Rick Rubin just threw his hands up and okay, and Grohl just like ah, right, which is so awesome. It's that's just, pretty awesome. <laughs> it is. It's like God. I wish I had that much cake to just yeah, yeah. I want that jet. Have you, well, have you been to six oh six to record on it again? No, man. I've never been there. I've always wanted to go there. I haven't so, either. Yeah. Grohl, if you see this. Have me come out and play a yeah. shaker or something. I don't care. He's watching my YouTube channel. <laughs> I just want to be there, man. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I know Jim Rota really well. So just have right. me come out and. Then one call Kirky B to go to. Yeah. Sleep. And I'll, I'll make coffee. Right. Bots. Yeah. Fresh bots. Fresh bots. <laughs> um, yeah. There's one other thing. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm off topic a little bit because I want this really to be specific about recording, but like, the thing that you just mentioned about guys staring at the screen when when Pro Tools was coming in and looking at it like that, which is really interesting to me because I think I spent a couple super stressed out years when I had my first studio at my other house and I was recording myself and I was looking at the WAV files. You know what I mean? Like I already, like I had a pretty good feel already and I knew that, but I was looking at those and I was, I was like bummed out, man. I was like, man, I suck. I cannot play like on the grid, you know, like, or the consistency. And then it eventually, you know, my head came back around and I was like, wait a minute. Charlie Watts doesn't play on the grid. Levon Helm doesn't play on the grid. There's you know, like, like you go back and listen to Asia, the song, the time is like this. And that's and, one of the greatest drum tracks ever. It's yeah. like, it kind of went, oh, wait a minute. I've lost perspective. You lost perspective. And that was the thing. It was like the whole reason why we get a call. Because, A, they like the way we sound and the way we feel. And the second you lose yourself to the grid, again, who cares? You know, I used to, when I used to do sessions early on on Pro Tools, man, I would fight for that third or fourth or fifth take. But you know, the producer and the engineer are like, no, 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 we got it, we'll fix it. And I was like, F the machines, man. I'm gonna beat the machine. Mm. And I was like, wait a second. Wait, I'm at the advantage here. I'm gonna give them the funkiest, greasiest shit. Then I'll give them a straight one as proper and prim and proper as possible. And I'm done. Yeah. And my headache is gone. And then you could decide what you want to do. You could either quantize me, beat detect me, sound replace me, whatever you want to do. But all that information is there. Right. And that's when I realized, okay, I provide information now. So here's the information I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you what you think I should play. And then whatever kind of take you want to do after that. 
and I'm out of here. I'm not going to stress. Right. Because you have all the tools to replace my drum sounds, beat detect me, and essentially control who, who and what I do. So then it's left to them to go, do I want 100% Blair Sinta or do I want just 50% Blair Sinta? And as you know, you get the phone call, dude, we kept your verses, but then we quantized your choruses. Then we felt like the third verse should be a little loose. So we left that and then quantized the last half of it. And then the <laughs> outro is all you. It's like, dude, whatever, man. I don't even need to know anymore. Right. Yeah. Right? Because they're controlling the information. And yeah. it's like, you have to remove your ego. Remove the ego. And then I was relieved. I was like, oh my God, now I could just play drums. Yeah. And I don't have to give a rat's ass if you think I suck or not. Because yeah. I'm giving you information and you're either going to take my information and use it or you're not. You either dig me because you dig my hang or you don't. Right. Call the dude that you dig hanging with. Then I don't have to show up. I can right. stay home. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. now it's like, now it's turned into a different thing. Like before it was like, we're going to call these guys because it's a great hang. The food's going to be great. The music's going to be great. The, the takes will be great. It'll just all be great. And that's what it was always based around, like the casting. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, Who's cheapest? Who's available? Who can give me all the tracks ready to go mm -hmm. now? Well, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that now. Right. But like you were saying earlier, the vibe is gone. All that magic and humanity and camaraderie is gone. Yeah. You know. Not to mention getting like three or four tunes in, a few days in, whatever, and you've really gelled. You've gotten to know the artist a little you know, you can start to joke with them. You understand the concept of the record and the sounds and what's happening. All those Correct. things that like, I mean. Oh my God. You have a by lifetime the, of those memories. Yeah. By the time the third or fourth day came along of cutting a record for a month with an artist, it was just like, oh my God, I know you. I know what you want from me. I know what, I know what you expect of me as a musician. And then I know the boundaries of which we could be at personally, mm -hmm. you know, as much as inside, I was like fanboying with Johnny cash. I knew that I had to be a certain way. You know, I knew I had to be like, all right, I don't want to come off a fanboy, but I want to let him know I respect him. Yep. And through that, you know, God bless him, man. He, he was the kindest dude and gave me some advice. You know, in 96 is, is the, uh, the year my wife and I got married. And so I was doing all those records with Johnny and Carl Perkins and uh, John Fogarty and Petty. And so that whole year was spent at Sound City. Wow. And, um, um, you know, I got to know these dudes and they were just really kind and they shared some wonderful personal things with me. And, you know, you just don't get that anymore. Right. It's like, you know, you get the text Hey, dude, got your number from so-and-so. Awesome. Can you do this? Okay, I just I just sent your burrito. <laughs> Could it be Sharkies and not Paquito? Sharkies, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't. There you go. Thank you. Sharkies. I kept thinking <laughs> of Jerry Porter. Jerry Porter, Sharkies, right. 
Jerry, if you're watching this, I owe you a Sharky's. <laughs> I was texting. Yeah, I might face. see Jerry tonight for tacos. Actually, yeah. I'm uh, sorry, we got we got derailed. Yeah, I mean, you know, unless unless you have something to add, I think I think we're in a I think we're in a good place. You know, I mean, this. You know, I tell I've already said this to you a couple times. I think it's amazing that you you came from where you you did. You know, you're like one of the real deal cats and you you did transition you know what i mean i think that's really hard for a lot of people and yeah the fact that you do it yourself and you've you know i well, mean was really, once you transitioned to home thing and then you you went down this drum cat route and you're making it work i think it's you know you're surviving i think it's awesome well thank you man and you know i was always in the mindset of i always want to be on top of technology like there's that infamous story of when the first Lin drum came out, the LM1. Uh, I think Roger Lin sent one to Jeff Picaro and Jeff opened it up and threw it in his pool. He didn't even plug it in. He threw it in his pool. And, and he said, I forgot who was there, but he said, this is the demise of drummers. Right. And to a big degree, he was right. Yeah. I mean that that makes me want to go down a whole new path, but we but you know, this could go on for three hours. But oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, is that so? Are you saying that's something that you learned from? You're like, wait a minute, I like that that particular story I learned from, and then and then really having friends that were geeky and tech guys, and a lot of my friends being guitar players and engineers, I was always around the technology, so. I don't, you know, early on, I was like, you know, I had a Mac 9600 and Logic, and I was doing it way before a lot of drummers were doing it. So I was able to understand recording MIDI and recording vocals and mm -hmm. guitars and then, and then eventually drums. Um, so, you know, learning a DAW and having a DAW back in 96, 95, 96, that really okay. helped get over the hump of, oh my God, tape is gone. Now it's in a computer. Mm -hmm. And I love dicking with computers. So it, it's kind of all coming together. At, right. You know, hand in glove, if you will. Yeah. You didn't really know that it would be survival. It was just an interest. Right. It was an interest. And then now it's part of my job description. Right. It was 60%. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i mean it's weird you know it's still weird when i have you know because i i uh <clears throat> i miss the days of just showing up and there was a world-class engineer and my job was just to create the drum track and make it feel good and you know be playing with these world-class musicians all at the same time and taking a lunch break and ordering from some expensive restaurant you know yeah with the budget, you know, like whatever you want. You want porterhouse steaks? Order a porterhouse steak. Okay. <laughs> Can't play drums after, but. Right, right. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It'll take as long as it takes for you to make this record happen. Right, right. But, you know, ironically with that, the, the, the musicianship level, too, had to be at its top level because if you weren't delivering – then you weren't going to be there anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there, there, there was a, there was a, 
there was a vibe and a relaxation of that, but that wasn't taken away from, you know, the, the level was probably, I mean, I, I hate to generalize like that, but like you had to be on top of your shit to be in that room. You had, you had to be on top of your shit to be in that room. And um, because so much information is coming at you so fast and just at lightning speed, you know, you had to obviously be able to read, adapt, um, just because the situation would change constantly. Mm-hmm. You find out, oh, it's in the wrong key. The artist says it's too high. So the musicians have to transpose on the spot. Mm-hmm. And usually when they do that, they would go, oh, now would be a good time to swap out the drums. Can yeah. you grab that Gretsch kit or get that DW kit out or the Rogers kit or whatever? So mm-hmm. not only a bunch of different kits and snare drums and cymbals, you had to just be able to adapt to the situation and not get tied into one thing. Yeah. Now it's just, what do you have? Oh, I got a shit kit with towels on it. Perfect. All right, I need 10 songs. Can you finish them by five tonight? Yeah. Yep, knock it out. Okay, here's 250 bucks and Sharky's burrito gift certificate. Done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In our case, the, also the tempo thing, right? It's like one or two BBM difference. And, when yeah, you're, and, with, the, and with the drum cat. That will, well, yeah. Solved. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I remember working on that thinking like, you know, way back in my really early green days, like, we're going to change the song by two BPM. Okay, whatever. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. I need to make that transition and make it feel good immediately because I get now that the lyric is not fitting. Right. Why. And those, those little things. <clears throat> little things, tempo. Tempo and fills. Fills are always the thing because it's, it's like, as drummers, we always want to do this awesome fill into the chorus. But it, nine times out of 10, steps on the lyric. Yep. And that's what got me into... You know, I think that's why I always got called to play behind singers because I understood what it took to play behind a singer. Mm-hmm. And um, and essentially it just meant staying out of the way. Yep. You know, sometimes all it needed was a pat boon crash into it or maybe just a pat or a boon <laughs> or nothing, just a crash into the chorus for them to... Maybe. Debbie Boone stays home, right? Debbie Boone stays home. Yeah. I just posted up on my website a picture of me and Debbie Boone. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I told her the story. I was like, look, you're you're infamous for drum fills. You know that, right? She's like, yeah, I, I found out about that. I forgot what drummer friend of hers told her, but yeah, wow. my dad and me are famous drum fills. Was, is, is there an actual origin to that story, do you think? Or do you think that's just... I think it's like... I don't know, man. I think... Whew. Was there some Somewhere, thing happening there at some point? Or do you think it just became a, a thing? Like somebody was I think it just became a thing. And then, and then someone probably did a session with Debbie Boone or Pat and said, Hey, by the way, did you know... <laughs> did you know on this date... Yeah. At this studio, we coined this the Pat Pat Boone Debbie Boone Phil. I could take months of research, man. Find out. 
I, and you know there's somebody that knows the answer to that. So yeah. comment below. And you probably know them. The answer. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, man, thank you. This is like, I mean, I really feel like I could ask you questions for like like three more hours. I know. This could go on and on and on. Yeah. But we'll do another time, anytime. Yeah, man. I mean, but, you know, and, and, and some of these, I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like we could talk about Picaro for like four hours because you have so much of – you know, knowledge about him and man, in in honor of Joe P, I busted out his book and started. Wow, this is such a great book, by the way. Um, this is yep. his first book, and it's just man, it does it, it covers a lot of cool shit in there. So yeah, yeah. After he passed, I was like, man, let me bust out his book and yeah, check it out. Were you? Uh, you know what? I'll st- I'll stop everything. I won't put this out. Did you did you speak with the family or him anytime recently? I got to see him on his 90th birthday and then two months after he passed away. Well, Kurt, man, thanks for doing this. This is awesome. Oh, man. Thank you, Blair, anytime. And hope I was able to shed a little bit of light on something. Uh, a lot of light for me. That's That's one of the awesome things about this. Like, you're the third person I've spoken to. And every time I'm, there's like a different, something different that somebody does in their own room that makes you go like, I'm going to try that, you know, the mic thing or the drum cat thing or the file delivery or who fucking knows. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, this was uh, a pleasure as always. Yeah. And when this pandemic stops, we'll definitely go get a burrito together. Angel City, burritos, whatever. That's the plan. All right, Kurt. Thanks, dude. I do. Yeah. See you, man. Bye. Bye.